Welcome to the City of Refuge Church Podcast. We are so excited that you have joined us. We are a church that is called, connected, and commissioned. We want to call all people to repent and believe in our Savior's loving grace. We want to connect our neighborhood to the unity found in the greater family of Christ. We want to commission others to live as kingdom citizens before the world and heaven. And we hope that this podcast gives you a glimpse of what God is doing in us and in the Eau Claire community. Thank you so much for tuning in. We are coming this week out of Nehemiah chapter 8. I'm only going to read the first 12 verses. I heard some of y'all breathing a sigh of relief, and that's good. (laughs) Nehemiah, the eighth chapter, verses 1 through 12. When you got it, say, I got it. All right. It reads, when the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people gathered together at the square in front of the water gate. They asked the scribe Ezra to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had given Israel. On the first day of the seventh month, the priest Ezra brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding. While he was facing the square in front of the water gate, He read out of it from daybreak until noon before the men, the women, and those who could understand. All the people listened attentively to the book of the law. The scribe Ezra stood on a high wooden platform made for this purpose. Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah stood beside him on his right. To his left were Padiah, Mishael, Mechalja, Hashum, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshulam. Ezra opened the book in full view of all the people, since he was elevated above everyone. As he opened it, all the people stood up. Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and with their hands uplifted, all the people said, Amen, Amen. Then they knelt low and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, and Peliah, who were Levites, explained the law to the people as they stood in their places. They read out of the book of the law of God, translating and giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was read. Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to all of them, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people were weeping as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go and eat what is rich, drink what is sweet, and send portions to those who have nothing prepared, since today is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, because the joy of the Lord is your strength. And the Levites quieted all the people, saying, Be still, since today is holy. Don't grieve. Then all the people began to eat and drink, sin portions, and have a great celebration, because they had understood the words that were explained to them. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, gathering around the word, that's, that's the thought I believe uh, God has given me to share with you all, to leave with you all. Gathering around the word. We see here in our text, just to kind of set the tone and set the setting, the wall had just been completed days before. Uh, everything had pretty much uh, 
been finished construction-wise. The people were just getting settled into their towns, it says in verse 1. If you go back to Nehemiah 7, verses 4 through 6, Nehemiah actually touches on this. He says the city was large and spacious, but there were few people in it, and no houses had been built yet. Then my God put into my mind to assemble the nobles, the officials, and the people to be registered by genealogy. I found the genealogical record of those who came back first, and I found the following written in it. These are the people of the province who went up among the captive exiles deported by King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. Each of them returned to Jerusalem and Judah to his own town. So this thing had been done very much in an orderly fashion. Nehemiah had laid it out, gotten everybody together. He, he went through a genealogical record of who had stayed where, and everybody was placed into their proper town. The timing of this also is significant, uh, in particular with the, what the Bible specifies as it being the first day of the seventh month. We'll get back to that in a little while. But the two things that jump out to me immediately are the where that they gather and the why that they gather. So let's take a look at the where first. This water gate that uh, the first couple of verses talk about was located on the east side of the city, and it gave access to what was called the Gihon Spring, which was a primary water source for the city. It was actually situated in a focal point of city life. So this wasn't a church building in the middle of nowhere where people didn't have easy access to. This is what you would probably equate to Main Street downtown. Everybody has easy access to this water gate. Uh, I see parallels here between this water gate, between the Gihon Spring and the Eau Claire community. For those of you all that do not know, Eau Claire is French for clear water. We're situated in a community with water in its name, and yet it's evident that this community is thirsty. Thirsty for what? Thirsty for love, thirsty for compassion, for justice, for friendship, for understanding, for outsiders to stop making assumptions about the people that are in it. More than any of those things, though, I believe that this community is thirsty for living water, similar to our community in the text, which brings me to the why of their gathering. They were at a water gate, but they, they weren't there for natural water. They were there for living water, specifically living water in the form of God's word. Uh, more accurately, God's word. They didn't have the full Bible that we have today. They had a limited number of scriptures from the Pentateuch specifically, but they still had his word. And they were more than, than willing and more than desiring to, to have what, they, what little they had to take advantage of it. Of all the things they could have asked for in that moment, their, 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 their town, their walls, their city had just been rebuilt. Of all the things they could ask for after, right after this was done, they asked for God's word. They were thirsty. They asked Ezra to bring the law of Moses. This was not a directive that came down from leadership. They asked him. And there was an assembly of men, of women, and all who could understand. So this means the kids were present. All who could understand. And Ezra read from the book of the law from daybreak, which would have been about 6 a.m., till noon. That's nearly six hours. And scripture says they, they listened attentively. Now, what kept their attention? <laughs> I have a few theories. I'm a nerd, so I like to kind of throw theories and thoughts out there. Uh, maybe it was a sense of fear and desperation on their part. Maybe what they had been through all those years, 
was weighing on them, along with the realization of why they had been in exile. You know, it wasn't bad enough they were in exile, but they, they understood those that at least had been keeping track of the fact that they had been in exile because of the sin. So maybe that realization, maybe that desperation not to make the same mistakes again was pushing their attentiveness. I'm reminded of what David says in Psalm 119, verses 25. It says, my life is down in the dust. Give me life through your word. Maybe that was their mentality. Maybe it was just deep gratitude for what they had accomplished. The walls were back up. The city of Jerusalem was repaired. It was actually looking like a city again, not just like a trash heap, right? They, they were grateful. Maybe gratitude drove their attentiveness. Beyond these two factors, which I think are, are pretty likely, I think what ultimately kept them attentive for nearly six hours, my head is hurting just thinking about that. And much of that actually was standing up. What kept their attention was the fact that what was being read to them was the word of God. Now, this is not an endorsement for long sermons. <laughs> I happen to be a huge fan of short sermons. Can I get an amen? Uh, I don't like being in church all day either, honestly. So not endorsing long sermons, not endorsing the length of time. And this is not a rebuke either of how much shorter our attention spans are. That, that's a well-known reality. I could harp on that, but I'm not going to. Or, you know, how many Bibles we have at home that, that you know, we, we could harp on those things. We all know that that's a reality. That's something that we need to work on. I want us to reckon with this, though. What kind of weight does God's word carry in your life? How, how weighty are the words of this book to you? How much does it dawn on you every time you crack your Bible open that I'm actually reading the word of God? How much does that actually weigh on you? The word clearly had weightiness to the people gathered around our text. How much weight does it have on you? How, how much does it occur to you while you're reading that this is actually God's word? How much are you actually allowing God's word to read you? I imagine that they said in their hearts, the foundations of these walls and our houses and our city, those foundations are well and good, but they mean nothing without the foundation of God's word. So Ezra starts reading. And you'll notice throughout the beginning uh, verses there that the reading of the word actually leads them to worship. If you look at uh, verses four through six, starts to kind of pan out like a church service, right? This, this turned into a good old-fashioned church service. Verse 5, Ezra, Ezra opens the book, the people stand. Y'all remember in church when they made, used to make you stand for the reading of God's word, right? Ezra blesses the Lord, gives an exhortation. You know, I can almost hear him saying, I was glad when they sent it to me, let us come into the house, right? The people lift their hands, they shout amen, amen, not once but twice. So you know when they shouted it twice, that means he was talking good, Right? <laughs> Then they knelt down and they put their faces to the ground in worship. This was a, this was a worship service, y'all. And yet it was more than a church service, more than a worship experience, because it wasn't just about the experience. They, actually, they went deeper. They went a lot deeper. Because the Levites, after Ezra's initial reading, then took the time to explain and break down the word that was read. If you look in verse uh, 5, 
Ezra opened the book in view of full view of all the people, since he was elevated above everyone. As he opened it, all the that's not the verse I want. Verse eight, excuse me. <laughs> they read out of the book of the law of God, translating and giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was read. That word translating that you see there in verse eight, in Hebrew, it could either mean literally translating, like from one language to another, in this case, from Hebrew to Aramaic, for instance, or it could mean breaking down the passage into manageable portions. It could mean either one of those two things. Now, either way, the point was that the word would be broken down to where even the kids present could understand. That was the main point. This is why the Levites took their time and said, we're not just going to have Ezra read to us. We're going to actually stop, break down what's being read, make sure people have an understanding, then move forward, stop, <laughs> make sure they understand what's being read, move forward. They, they did this. This is probably why it took six hours, honestly. <laughs> but it was good. It was good that they gained understanding. I'm reminded again of what David says in Psalm 119, verses 33 to 34. Teach me, Lord, the meaning of your statutes, and I will always keep them. Help me understand your instruction, and I will obey it and follow it with all my heart. The understanding was clearly important to Ezra and to those that were working with him. And as you'll see, the understanding actually leads to an interesting reaction. It actually leads to the people weeping. You see this in verse 9. Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to all of them, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people were weeping as they heard the words of the law. As the truth of God's word sunk in, the people started weeping because they were made painfully aware of their sin and how badly they had missed the mark. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3 and 16, all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable. It is good for teaching, but for rebuking, <laughs> for correcting, and for training in righteousness. That, that's the thing about God's word. That's the thing that I love about it and the thing that also makes me cringe. When it's presented right, it can be both incredibly, indescribably joyful and yet also heart-wrenchingly convicting when it's done right. You should be feeling either of those effects when it's done right. And the conviction can be weighty, but it isn't, it isn't meant to crush you. It's really meant to just spur you on to repentance and ultimately to draw you nearer to the Lord. Hebrews 4, verses 12 to 16, it's, it's very familiar to everybody that's, that's seen it. For the word of God is living and effective. In the King James Version says it's quick and powerful and sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from him, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Now, this is interesting because I, I did not really see this connection before, but those two very familiar verses that kind of more or less paint the word of God as a sword that cuts you are in the same context of these next verses. Therefore, since we have a great high priest 
who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. That same word that cuts also heals, also draws, also restores. This is why Nehemiah and Ezra and the Levites were saying, yeah, I'm, I'm glad y'all are weeping. This is good. This is a proper response to the word of the Lord. But this is not a time to stay weeping. Celebrate. Be joyful. And he says to them in verse 10, go and eat what is rich, drink what is sweet, send portions to those who have nothing prepared, since today is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, because the joy of the Lord is your strength. How do Nehemiah and Ezra and the Levites comfort the weeping Israelites? By proclaiming that this day is holy to the Lord. Now, you remember the day and the month referenced at the start of this chapter? You remember it's the first day of the seventh month? Let, let's, let's break that down a little bit more now. So the first day of the seventh month, according to Leviticus 23 and 24, it was designated to be a day of rest, kind of like a Sabbath. This is why Ezra and the others describe it as holy. You know, the fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath to keep it holy? The first day of the seventh month was considered a, such a day. Nehemiah goes on to tell the people to have a party, you know, eat what is rich, <laughs> drink what is sweet, send portions, and then he uses a phrase that we all, you know, love to harp on. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Yet it's in the context of holiness. The joy of the Lord is your strength is in the context of holiness. Why, what, 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 I don't know about you all, but when you hear the word holiness, is joy something that often comes to mind <laughs> when you hear holiness? If you're like me, it's not. If, if you hear holiness, you hear, this, this, is, this is me kind of telling on myself as far as my upbringing. I hear a strict dress code. I hear rules. I hear regulations. I hear do's and don'ts, right? I hear holier than thou. Some people acting holy that are really not. I hear how good and holy God is, and I feel how much I'm not him. When I hear the word holiness, it doesn't immediately generate a good feeling. And don't get me wrong, recognizing how distinct we are from God is good. That's proper. But it's equally important to understand that God's holiness is not meant to be a barrier. It's not meant to be a barrier. Uh, I know I have fellow nerds in here. I'm going to use a real quick nerd reference. So um, God's holiness is not meant to be a force field. Anybody familiar what a force field is? It's this thing around you that repels people, right? It's meant to push you away. That's not God's holiness. God's holiness is more like a tractor beam. I know, I know, it's nerdy, I know, I know. I'm gonna make it make sense, I'm gonna make it make sense. It's one of those things where it, 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 it draws you in. It draws you in, and when you're in the midst of it, you acknowledge, you feel that you're powerless, right? You're powerless to do anything in your own strength in the midst of God's holiness. Yet it's not repelling you, it's drawing you in. He draws you in. And that's the reason for joy. 
The people in this text, like I said, were right to acknowledge how far off the mark they were. But it was never God's intention for them or us to stay there. It's okay for us to say, God, I'm not good enough. God's like good. I'm glad you recognize that. That's kind of the point. Now you can rest in me and have joy. And you can celebrate as the people did here in verse 12 because they understood the words that were explained to them. Now that the truth of God's word is sunk in, now that they have a proper understanding of their sinfulness, now that they understand, look, I, I've, I've missed the mark, they are now free to celebrate because of that acknowledgement. This is not cheap grace. Don't get me wrong. This is not one of those things where like, you know, oh, well, I just acknowledge that I've done wrong and there's no repentance. We'll see in chapter 9 when Jay will preaches this that they have a, a very extensive confession of sin. We'll see that in chapter 9. But this is such a beautiful picture, I think, of Jesus' atoning work. I see Jesus in this text. Now, remember the public scripture reading and the breakdown that was done? Uh, in verses 13 through 18 of this chapter, it says that the next day, so Ezra does this reading on the first day of the seventh month, right? In verses 13 through 18, it says that the next day, the second day, you have family leaders, you have priests, you have Levites who continue studying the word, and they notice the instructions regarding the Feast of Shelters and immediately made preparations to, to celebrate it. Now, the Feast of Shelters also referred to in other translations as the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. It basically involved families sleeping under temporary shelters, kind of like camping out in tents, which is something I'm sure the kids would have really enjoyed as a way to commemorate the protection that God provided the children of Israel as they wandered in the wilderness. Now, the interesting thing is, again, if we're, if we're going time frame, you have Ezra reading scripture on the first day of the seventh month. This comes at the second day of the seventh month. Now, in Leviticus 23, traditionally, the Day of Atonement would have taken place before the Feast of Shelters. The Day of Atonement would have happened the 10th day of the seventh month. The Feast of Shelters normally would happen on the 15th day. So it looks like they skipped the Day of Atonement. It looks like it, right? I would think that's pretty important. What, what's the deal? Why, why, why is it not there? Permit me now to use my imagination for a moment. I imagine that God allowed this omission of the Day of Atonement to point us to the cross. The Day of Atonement involved the blood sacrifice of one goat followed by a scapegoat that was supposed to symbolically carry the sins of the people away into the wilderness. That was the general uh, idea of the Day of Atonement. Now the problem with the Day of Atonement is that the people's sins were only declared forgiven for that one day. All the other days of the year, the sins are still weighing on them. So this, this atonement clearly comes up short. But when Jesus died on the cross, he died once for all the sins of humanity. And putting our faith in that work guarantees that our sins are forgiven forever. Not just one day, forever. It's almost as if God is saying here to the people and to us that you need not worry yourself about trying to atone for your sin. Don't worry about it. Well, oh, we have to follow the tradition. The Day of Atonement comes before the Feast of Shelter. We, we need to worry about this atonement before we celebrate. No. I've done the work. 
Put, put your faith in what I've already done. Celebrate the fact that your sins are forgiven and that you don't have to work. Truth be told, you can't work to atone for your sins. I've got that covered. You're free to have joy. You're free to celebrate. And verse 17 says, they had not celebrated like this since Joshua was still alive. It had been that long since they had celebrated in this manner. And there was tremendous joy. And that celebration continued for seven more days, with Ezra actually reading from the book of the law each day. <laughs> so they were getting a heavy dose of celebration and a heavy dose of the word all at once. And it, it was amazing. Really, just like the people in our text, we are gathered here today around the word. Every aspect of what we do here in, in this, this Watergate called Eau Claire, right? Everything that we do here should be centered around the word. That doesn't mean we only focus on sermons or Bible studies. Our worship, our hospitality, our community outreach, our everyday lives, all of those things should be centered around the word. They should point to the word and not just the words in this book. Jesus once said to the Pharisees, you're searching the scriptures as if that's it. Those things actually point to me. That's what gives them authority. It's not the book in and of itself. It's who the book points to. The written word and the spoken word both point to the living word. So I just want to encourage us today. We're gathered here around the word. And for those of us who have experienced God's redemptive power and his atoning work, we have reason to celebrate. We have reason to be joyful. We have reason to place our faith in him. And let's compel others that we see in this community, in our neighborhoods, in our family, our friends. Let's compel others to gather around this good word. Amen? Amen. Would you pray with me? Father, I'm thankful uh, for your word, your word that gives life. God, your word that gives conviction and correction. God, I'm thankful that you sent your word, as your word says, to heal us and to deliver us from our destruction. I'm thankful, God, that you are a God who desires repentance from us, and you desire us, God, to acknowledge our sin but you don't, ignore, you don't desire us to wallow in guilt and in shame. But God, after we've repented, you lift us up and you tell us, have joy, celebrate. You've put your faith in my work, now celebrate and rest in that. I'm reminded of what Jesus said, come to me all you that labor and are heavy laden and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me for my yoke is easy, my burden is light and you'll find rest for your soul. I'm thankful, God, for the soul rests that we have in you. I pray, God, that we would lean into that as a church body, that in this Eau Claire community, Lord, that we would be the water gate in this, in this text, that we would be, God, that gate that gives access to you. Help us in our everyday lives, God, in everything that we do to compel men and women and children to gather around your word, your living word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.